you have your Bible, please turn with me to Luke chapter 3. We continue our verse-by-verse exposition of Luke this morning. We have been examining in chapter 3 the ministry of John the Baptist. We have saw his, his ministry of repentance, his message of repentance, and then ultimately the reason for repentance. The Messiah is coming. And as Pastor Freddie showed last week, this Messiah is not coming to baptize with water. He's not coming to be a mere prophet like John is. He is coming to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, with power and purification. He will give His people power and He will purify them with refining fire. But those who will not receive Him by faith will know only the fire of His judgment as opposed to the fire of His purification. All people will be baptized by fire with Jesus, either in purification or in judgment. The only thing that divides us is what will you do with Him? Will you receive Him and believe upon Him? Or will you reject Him? But either way, you will bow and you will know His fire, either in purification or judgment. Tonight, or today, we see John's ministry now close. Luke brings John's ministry to a close in order to usher in the greater ministry of Jesus. So that's what we see today. This is a transitional passage that brings John's ministry to a close and Jesus' ministry to inauguration in beginning. So let's read together verse 18 through 38, all the way to the end of the chapter. We read, So with many other exhortations, he, that's John, preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wives, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Methot, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janiah, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Isla, the son of Nagai, the son of Moth, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Joseph, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Cossum, the son of Eldalam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Mathot, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Manah, the son of Mattathah, the son of Nathan, the son of David. The son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Amminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalil, the 
the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When you look at the world, it doesn't take long for the effects of sin to become very apparent to you. Pride, greed, lust, envy, glutton, anger, sloth. Our society no longer sees these as seven deadly sins, but as marketing ploys. Lust is our way of life. Envy, just another nudge towards another sale. Even our relationships, we consume each other. Only looking at others for what they can give us. Our appetites are often satisfied at the expense of those around us. Humanity finds itself aimlessly traveling the corridors of our existence, filled with confusion and questions. We feed our existential taste buds with every pleasure under the sun. Sex, drugs, status, power. And we find that all of them leave us as broken cisterns, more empty than we were before even trying them. As Solomon would say, it's all vanity. It's all vanity. It's easy for us to look at the world and criticize how bad it is, while never embracing the dark reality of our own hearts. For it is the natural heart of man where all these things come from. The prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? My friends, what you see in this world of rebellion is merely a world that's following their own heart. Just follow your heart. That's what you see in the world. Plenty of people following their hearts. Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, verse 21 through 23, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. From within. My friends, I want you to know today, in spite of popular opinion, the human race does not progress. We may develop more instruments, but we are the same old depraved sinful creatures. This is progressivism's ultimate blind spot. That though we're maybe a little bit more enlightened, or if we were just more cultured, or if we were a little bit smarter, if we all started from the exact same place with the exact same opportunities, we could all radically change humanity for the better. If we just had a perfect law system, there would be no injustice. Ask the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. They had a perfect law. And they were full of injustice. Oh, if we were just enlightened. 
if reason dictated all things, then we would have peace. My friends, in the French Revolution, those calling for enlightenment and reason were the first to drop the guillotine on the next they disagreed with. Oh, if we just had more medicines and health care. My friends, we have the greatest amount of medicine that the world's ever known. We have medicines that can absolutely get rid of your pain while at the same time destroying your life by growing ever more dependent on their antidote. Oh, if we just had more technology. My friends, we can look in the womb of a woman today with a machine and watch her baby suck its thumb. We can go in utero and conduct heart surgery on a baby early on. While in just three rooms down the hallway, tear a baby limb to limb using the same technology. In other words, we've just found more clever and efficient ways to perform the same kind of genocide we once labeled a savage and barbaric. In other words, Hitler would have been labeled a champion of progress if he just killed six million people while they were still in utero. This is the myth of progressivism. Though everything around us might change, the nature of humanity remains the same. Is there any hope for us in this world? Is there any hope for such darkness? Is there any hope to change this? Don't you feel the battle in yourself at times? That that battle of just being so frustrated. I'm so sick of these invasive thoughts coming in my mind. I'm so sick of feeling angry and not being able to control it. I'm so sick of looking that way. I don't want to look at, but I just keep doing it. Don't you feel the battle even within yourself? Paul did. Paul knew this. Romans chapter 7, Paul writes, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law and that's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right but not the ability to carry it out. Paul's saying, you can have all the desire in the world to change, but left to yourself, if it's just you, you can't do anything to fix it. So when someone comes to you and you're preaching the gospel to them or sharing the gospel and they say, I can't change, you can say, I know you can't, but Christ can. No, you can't change, but Christ can change it. Because this is what Paul would say in wrestling with this. Verse 24, he says, Wretched man who, that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver us? Who will deliver us from ourselves, much less the world? Who will deliver us? Oh, I'm so glad there was an answer to this question. For he says in the very next verse, verse 25, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who will deliver us from this body of death? Who will deliver us from this suffering world? Who is our hope? 
Who is, is the help that we so desperately need to do what we know is right? And the answer is Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus Christ is the answer. Paul proclaimed exactly what Luke wishes to illustrate in this opening announcement of Jesus' ministry. And that is this. Here's the main point of the Gospel. Here's the main point of the New Testament. The Gospel message exists to proclaim one very clear point. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God and the perfect Son of Man is humanity's only hope for salvation and eternal life. Our only hope. There is not another this morning. From the outset, I must say that there is no other hope this morning. Without Jesus, we, all we have is death. Without Jesus, all we have is suffering and sorrow. There is no hope for you this morning. Without Jesus, we have to be nihilist. Everything is meaningless. There is no point to life if there is no Jesus. But there is Jesus. And therefore, there is meaning. And there is value. And there is purpose. And there is life. And there is hope. Because there is Jesus. Luke makes this transition to Jesus' ministry so clear that Jesus is the hope of humanity. That's what all of this way that Luke has structured his text this morning is to make clear from the outset of Jesus' earthly ministry, he is the only hope for humanity. So let's look at that this morning. There are four things that Luke's text demonstrates to us about how Christ is our only hope. First, he is our only hope. Because though his message and people are opposed at every turn, his purposes will never be thwarted. We see this at the closing of John's ministry. Verse 18 to 20. So with many other exhortations, he, that's John, preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So here, right, Luke is bringing John's ministry to a clear closing. John preached the good news, we are told, the gospel. He warned sinners of the judgment that they were under, the brood of vipers. He called them to repent of their sin, and then he turned them towards the only one who could give them eternal life, the Messiah. That's the gospel. Reveal people that they are under the judgment of God because of their sin. Repent of your sin and turn to the only one who can save you, Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's what John is preaching. And part of being a faithful preacher of the gospel means calling sin, sin. No matter who's doing it or whether or not the world approves of what you're saying. You see, though the world's standards of right is a constantly moving target, God's standards are fixed. And that's good. Because if you know that God's standards as to what He sees as sin never changes, then you can be certain that the provision He's provided for sin will never change. So if His standards of what is sin never changes then His standard of what will get you out of that sin will never change. That's good news. That's really good news. My God is not a moving target. He's a firm foundation. John the Baptist did not confine his preaching to Sabbath mornings at the synagogue. No, his preaching was public 
and was very sharply critical of the power structures of the age. He took on religious authorities, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. He took on military leaders. Then he took on the king himself, King Herod. And he publicly denounced him for his illicit marriage to his brother's wife, who was also his niece. For in Jewish law, the act of marriage by Herod to Herodias was not only adultery, but it was also considered incest according to Jewish law. It was scandalous that the king, who in the Old Testament days was supposed to be the model of devotion to God's people, was living in such outward sin. And John calls him on it. John calls him on it. Like the Old Testament prophet that he is, John rebuked the king for not living in accordance with the righteous standards of God. No wonder the prophets of the Old Testament were constantly killed. Because they all did this. They were the conscience of Israel. The conscience of the nation. And any time that you preach against sin, it convicts those who are living in unrepentant sin. That's that's why you have two choices, right? When you preach the gospel, when you preach the reality of sin and judgment, it convicts all people. And either that conviction leads to them surrendering, confessing, and turning to salvation, or it leads them to hardening themselves and further rebelling. But preaching sin will convict no matter what. The role of John the Baptist as the last Old Testament prophet, was not merely to announce the coming Messiah, to call to repentance, but the recognition to once again call the nation of Israel and to recognize its own sins and to believe and turn to its only hope in its Messiah, Jesus. But nevertheless, because of His preaching, His faithfulness to the Gospel, His faithfulness to call sin, sin, John would be imprisoned. And we know that ultimately that imprisonment would lead to his beheading. His death. The closing of John's ministry does a few things. First, it further connects him as the one who came in the spirit of Elijah. Because Elijah, what? He's preaching constantly against this wicked king Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel. And Jezebel wants Elijah dead. And Herodias wants John dead. And, and, and Herod's scared to do it. Just like Ahab was scared to do it. So both Jezebel and Herodias in this situation have to go around and scheme in order to try to bring about the death of the prophet. It also denotes the reality that John had to decrease in order that Christ could increase. And John had said that himself. He must decrease so that I or so I must decrease so that he Jesus must increase. And so here Luke is wanting to make a clear break between John's ministry and Jesus's ministry. The old is fading, the new has come. But it also demonstrates that the Word of God will always rub raw those living in unrepentant sin, especially those in power. Because the same gospel that saves also hardens. 
Just like the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. One of the greatest displays of the depravity of man is the way that throughout history it has sought to silence the messengers of God. That's why Jesus could say, marvel not when the world hates you. Hated me. So that's why Spurgeon would often say, be weary when the world speaks well of you. The only hope for humanity, though, is that someone can come who the wicked actions of men cannot kill or silence. They killed prophet after prophet, messenger after messenger. Someone had to come who could not be killed and silenced once and for all. Enter Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man. Once again, we have a Herod who just like his father was trying to kill the good news. This Herod is the son of Herod the Great who tried to kill all the boys under the age of two when he heard about the fact that there might be a king coming. When power feels threatened, it seeks to put down and kill. That's what this is all about here. Once again, Herod acting in the same way that his father did. And once again, Jesus will go untouched by it. Here he wishes to kill John. But notice, not one second before John has completed his divinely established purpose to herald in the coming Messiah. You're untouchable until the purposes of God are complete for you. I want you to know that today. You can know that with absolute certainty. Not a single hair on your head is touched without God saying so. And so if it does happen, you can know this is for my good and His glory. But until then, it will not happen until His plan is complete for you. Period. He is too sovereign. No matter what men try to do to kill the gospel, wherever it's preached, Jesus will show up. No matter what men try to do to kill the gospel, they try to do it in China, they try to do it in the Middle East, wherever Jesus is preached there, He will show up. No matter what men try to do to kill it, no matter what men try to do to stop it, where He is preached, Christ will show up. Even in humanity's darkest moments, its its ugliest hours, where sin has reared its head the worst, Jesus still rises. They imprisoned and they went on to kill John. And yet, Jesus rose from the scene. They would kill Jesus and yet he would rise from the grave. You can't kill him. You can't put him down. No matter what you do to his people or what you do to his message, you can't stop Christ from accomplishing his purposes. They're unthwartable. They're unstoppable. That's what you belong to, Christian. Let men do what they will with us. Let them oppose us at every turn. My Christ will rise. He will rise and he will break through in every way. So let them rise against. Let them press against. Let them imprison and kill. Christ will rise. He is unstoppable. And that is why He is our only hope. They can kill us. They can kill me. But they cannot kill Christ. He is unstoppable. His purposes are unthwartable. This is why He is our only hope. Because He is the only one who can overcome the immensity of our depravity. All of the prophets would be killed and silenced, but not Christ. 
As he says in Revelation, Behold, I died, but yet I am alive forevermore. And he cannot be killed. He cannot be stopped. His purposes cannot be thwarted. And that is why he alone is our only hope. Secondly, he is our only hope because though perfectly spotless himself, he chose to identify with and take the place of sinners. We see this in his baptism. Verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. Now, this should immediately spark a question in your heart. Why did Jesus come to be baptized? Since John's baptism was what? A baptism for the repentance or a baptism of the repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Well, Jesus is sinless. So he's got no need to repent. He's got no sins to be forgiven of. So why in the world would he come to be baptized? If you've pondered that, you're in good company. The baptizer himself wondered why the world Jesus was doing there. What are you doing here? And we see this more clearly in in Matthew's account of this. Matthew 3, verse 14 and 15. We read, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And, And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. So in John's confusion... Jesus provides us with a little bit of an answer as to why he's doing this. He says this is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now what did Jesus mean by that? What does he mean by fulfilling all righteousness? Well, as the Messiah, Jesus had come to be the sin bearer. To bear our sin. It was incumbent upon him to fulfill the law of God in every detail. As one who had come to bear our sins, he had to enter into his people's indebtedness to God. He had to become one with them, entering into the sin of his people as the Lamb of God. Though sinless, he enters into and identifies with the sin of his people. The very sin he came to bring forgiveness Now, when Luke seeks to emphasize this in his description in verse 21, notice how he puts it. He says, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized. Now, why does he put it in that order? Why not just focus on Jesus' baptism? Why say all the people were baptized and also when Jesus was baptized? It's because Luke is connecting Jesus' baptism in a way that will not let it be separated from the baptism of all the people. It's the same baptism. When Jesus was baptized, like all the people. All the people. Jesus was not baptized for His own sins. Rather, He was identifying with sinners in their need for forgiveness. Jesus entered into John's baptism for the same reason He entered into His creation. To identify with and take the place of sinners. Isaiah 53.12 says this about the suffering servant to come. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with strong. Because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. In other words... 
both the inauguration, baptism, and culmination, Calvary, of Christ's earthly ministry marks why He came to be numbered among the transgressors in order to bring salvation to the transgressors. That's why He says it is to fulfill all righteousness. Because I will be their righteousness. I have come to identify with sinners. This is the very reason why I came. To identify with them in their sin in order to be the only hope for their salvation. It is necessary that He identified with sinners in our need for forgiveness in order for Him to be able to both provide that forgiveness and to impute His righteousness to them. He had to identify with our sin in order that we could identify with His righteousness. The choice Jesus made at His baptism to identify with sinners was the same choice that led Him to be crucified. Paul makes this clear in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, He made Him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. The greatest gospel verse. He was made sin in order that we could be made righteous. The great exchange of Calvary. Jesus chose to be baptized not because it was necessary to fulfill the law. There was no baptism requirement in the law. That's often misunderstood. It wasn't. He chose to be baptized because it was necessary that he identify with sinners. That's why he did it. There's no staple in the law that says you must be baptized. The fulfill all righteousness was I have to identify with sinners. I have to identify with those I came for. And both his beginning and end of his ministry is a picture of what he came for. I came to identify with sinners. If you are amazed to hear of Jesus being baptized then you should be infinitely more perplexed to to see Him crucified. And yet both of them were done for the same purpose. They were done for sinners like you and me. He came to identify with sinners not just in a baptism of repentance, but in an even greater baptism of judgment. He was buried in the water to identify with us. And he was buried in the fire of God's wrath for you and me at Calvary. Both were for you and for me to fulfill all righteousness. He chose to identify with and take the place of sinners in his baptism, in his life, in his death. And that's why He could be our only hope. And I love that. He came to be baptized in order so that He could identify with us. And then He gave us a baptism so that we could be identified with Him. I will be baptized as a picture of your sinfulness. And you will be baptized as a picture of my victory. That's what baptism is. And that's why He kept it. Not for the same reason. But now it is not merely a picture of death. It's a picture of life. 
His baptism was to identify with us. Our baptism is to identify with Him and His victory. He is our only hope. Thirdly, Jesus is our only hope because as the anointed Son of God, He alone can reconcile men to God in perfect salvation. Verse 21 and 22, Jesus had been baptized, was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on Him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. This scene found in the Gospels regarding the divine declaration of Jesus' true identity is perhaps one of the most important in all the New Testament. And as such, there's much to which we should draw our attention to in these details. It says that after His baptism, as He was praying, the heavens were opened. Now, Luke is the only one of any of the Gospel writers that mentioned Jesus is praying. None of everyone else, he's baptized, the heavens open. But no, Luke says, as he was praying, the heavens were opened. Now, Luke has an affinity for the prayer life of Jesus. We're going to see this throughout his gospel. He shows him praying at all the crucial turning points of his life. Jesus praying at his baptism. He prays at the selection of the 12 apostles. He prays at Peter's confession. He prays at the transfiguration. He prays in Gethsemane and he prays on the cross. He tells us that Jesus went repeatedly to the wilderness to pray. That he spent whole nights in prayer. And so much could be said here of the importance of prayer. But this should suffice for now. Jesus saw fit to pray. And because it was precisely in his hours of prayer that God so often acted to reveal his son in greater ways to the world, how much more do you think we ought to pray? If Jesus saw fit to pray, literally the eternal son of God saw fit to pray in his time on earth. And every time he prayed, God the father saw fit to use that as a means to reveal something greater about his son. How much more do you think we should pray? How much glory and revelation of the Son's work in our behalf and the Son's glory before us and the Son's work within us, how much of that is missed because we don't pray? There will not be much that we will ever feel ashamed about when we get to glory. But I think when we behold the glorious God of heaven and all of His might and power, I believe the only thing that Christians will be ashamed of is how little they prayed to Him. He was always available to me. And I would not pray. If Christ prayed, how much more should we? So here we see praise and the heavens are open. Every time we see in scriptures that the heavens are open, this is a means that the God of heaven is now revealing himself to those on earth. The fabric between heaven and earth is now ripping to reveal the person of Christ. That's precisely what Christ is. Christ is where heaven and earth meet. The God, God, man, perfect balance where heaven and earth find its full Meeting point is at the person of Christ. And here we have the triune God being fully revealed before men. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If there, there, there is no more clear passage of the Trinity than what we have in Jesus' baptism. 
This undermines modalism, which just simply says there's only one God, one person who reveals himself in three different modes. That's false. False teaching. This undermines the reality that there are, are three different gods. Tritheism. No, there is one God and three persons fully revealed in this culminating act of declaration that God is coming to save sinners. And we, we don't see this kind of perfect triune picture where they're all in a single moment like this, a single frame like this, except for in creation. In the beginning. Why? Why now? Do we see this once again triune picture being revealed to earth in this moment? It's because a new creation is coming. A new creation is coming. And the word that brought creation into existence is now standing there dripping wet from being baptized with sinners in a river he spoke into being. That's marvelous. And not to blow your mind if it doesn't mean thinking hard enough about it. We are beholding something stunning here. And I love this. Because it makes very clear. All three persons in the Godhead are equally concerned in the deliverance from souls from hell. All three persons are behind this coming salvation. All three persons put their stamp of approval on the reality that Christ is the only hope for humanity. That thought should cheer us up when we are disquieted and cast down. The whole power of the triune God is on your side in salvation. And as, as Ecclesiastes says, a threefold cord is not easily broken. The whole power of the triune God is behind you, little Christian, if you're in Jesus. So now you can hear when Paul says, God is for you. What that means. What do you have to fear? We're told that as the heavens open, the Holy Spirit depends, the, the descends upon Jesus in, the, in bodily form like a dove. Now, this is called a theophany, an appearance of God, when the Holy Spirit appears in, in a bodily or a physical form. Right? This isn't the only place we see it here. He comes down in the bodily form of a dove. In Acts, He comes down like fire, like flames of fire over the heads of the apostles, right? That's a physical incarnation or picture of the Holy Spirit, a physical embodiment of it. It's a theophany, an appearance of God. Now, some have argued that this was the point where Jesus received the Holy Spirit. That's false, heretical, and wicked. Jesus always had the Holy Spirit. He was conceived in the womb by the Holy Spirit. He's the eternal Son of God. From the very moment that, that God and man came together in the womb at that cellular level, the Holy Spirit was fully involved in every way and impacted. This is also not when Jesus was adopted as the Son of God. That's another false teaching called adoptionism. Wrong. False. He's the eternal Son of God. He is always eternally generating from the Father. There was never a time when the Father was and the Son was not. Always flowing from Him in every way. Always in perfect union and relationship. This is merely the moment where at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, the triune God is declaring first and foremost that He is the anointed one. That's why the Spirit comes down. It's a picture. He's the anointed one. And He is the Son of God. It reveals His anointing and His identity. 
to make clear who has come to bring salvation to humanity. That's what this picture is all about. Now, why a dove? You know, that's a, that's a, a question. You know, there's a lot of things and a lot of debates have come over that. There's only one other place where Jesus talks about a dove, Matthew 10, 16, where he says, Behold, I sing you out of sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Doves are symbolic of innocence, of purity, of meekness. It was not majestic like the eagle or fierce like the hawk, flamboyant like the cardinal. It's simple, common, innocent. It was the kind of bird that the poor could offer for a sacrifice. Think the dove was a reason for a few things, but not only these things. It was also the dove that brought the olive branch back to Noah. It was an olive branch that this dove had appeared back to Noah declaring, you have been fully rescued from the wrath and chaos of the flood. And the salvation for you has fully come and fruitful land is available for you to land on. And so when the Holy Spirit descended upon Christ, He was declaring to all the world, to you and to I, this Jesus has come humble and lowly And He is for everyone, the highest and the lowest, the richest and the poorest. And He is the only hope of being rescued from the wrath to come and to receive the salvation and fruitful land that only God can provide. That's why He came the way He did. That's why a dove, He came like a dove. Jesus is God's olive branch to humanity. For you can only know peace and security when you've landed on Him. This is the testimony of the Spirit. And we hear the testimony of the Father. You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. God the Father was not declaring a new truth here. God the Father was merely making known a truth from all eternity. This is my beloved Son. We'll hear that language at the transfiguration and elsewhere. This heavenly testimony echoes two Old Testament texts. Psalm 2.7 Right? I will decree of the, tell the decree of the Lord. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. What's that, that psalm all about? We went through the psalms this summer. This is a messianic psalm. It's an enthronement psalm. It's when the king is ascending to the throne of his kingdom. That's what's happening here at the inauguration of his ministry. The kingdom of God has come. Heaven and earth, the fabric of heaven has been ripped open. Jesus has brought heaven to earth and He's establishing the kingdom of God by which He sets up His reign over. And that's what's being pictured here. But it also combines Isaiah 42.1. A picture of that suffering servant again. Where the Lord says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen and whom my soul delights. I put my spirit on him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. All of this is being proclaimed in this moment of the baptism. The king has come to ascend to his throne over God's kingdom. And the servant has come to bring justice and salvation to the nations. He is the suffering servant king. And he has come to save. How would he do it though? 
God actually taught another lesson to His followers in this declaration. There's another place where we see this language. Behold my beloved son. Why does he say that? Why does he call him my beloved son? What, what would he want the, all of those Jewish hearers there gathering around that have been baptized? What would he want that to have immediately stirred in their heart? And the answer is the story of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham and Isaac. Abraham, the patriarch of Israel. Promised to God that he would bear, have, give birth to a child, a son that would come through him and Sarah. They tried their own thing. We know how that worked out. But God says, no, it will come how I say it in my plan, in my, my purposes. And God gives him a son miraculously, wonderfully named Isaac. And Abraham loves Isaac. It's his only son. And God asked him to do something that's shocking. Genesis 22. Listen to the language. Verse 1 through 2. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. What? God, you gave me this son. He's my only one, the only one that you promised your line through. I love him with all of my heart. He's my only one. Are you asking me to give him up as a sacrifice? And yet Abraham goes. He doesn't question God because he trusts God. He knows. I love what Hebrews 11 says that Abraham knew that even if he killed him, God could raise Isaac up from the dead. This is all about faith. Abram trusted him. Let's read the rest of the story. Verse 7 through 14. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar and there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar and on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. Yahweh Yireh. As it is said up to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So much in this story. Why would God ask this? Was this merely just a test of faith? Or was God teaching a much greater lesson behind it? It's a much greater lesson. Yes, it was a demonstration of faith, but it was so much more. An interesting tidbit in this story that is often missed over is Isaac. Notice the story says nothing about Isaac running, Isaac fighting, Isaac screaming, shouting, running, fleeing. That's what I would do. 
and Abraham's an old guy. I think Isaac would have had a good shot of getting out of there. The way that Moses has been inspired to write this is very clear. Isaac is seen as one who volitionally lays himself on the altar. Trusting merely in his father. I will lay down. Because God will provide. And in the midst of this, we see the picture of the gospel. My friend, when Jesus came, he did not come running or screaming. He did not come fighting his father. He is not the product of divine parental abuse. He came freely, volitionally, to lay himself on the altar. To be sacrificed by his father. But there was no ram to get him off the altar. He was the ram. He was the lamb. God was teaching Abraham precisely what he was going to do. I am going to give my only beloved son. Who I have been with with all eternity in perfect communion and love. And I will not provide lamb for him. He will be the lamb. For you. For you. And when God the Father declared these words over His eternal Son, He was declaring, Here is the Lamb that I have provided so that you could be taken off the altar and replaced by Him. And if you've repented and trusted in Jesus for salvation, then you have been reconciled to God. And so now when He sees His Son and calls you His beloved, He delights over you and in you He is well pleased. Everything that the Father says about His Son here, if you're in Jesus today, that's exactly what He says about you. You are beloved. He is well pleased with you if you're in Christ today. Because when He sees you, He sees His Son. And you are beloved. And you are delighted in. You are pleased. God is pleased with you. I hope that burns away every anxiety in your heart. That if you're in Jesus by faith, you have peace with God and He's pleased with you. Stop trying to earn your place in God's standing. You can't. You can just rest in who you are in Christ. And if you're in Christ by faith, you are loved and well pleased in. Regardless of what anyone else says of you today, you are beloved and well pleased in by God. If you're in Christ. He alone can reconcile sinners to God because He is God bringing God to man perfectly within Himself. And therefore He, by sacrificing in our place, has brought peace with God, with us sinners. And therefore He is our only hope. And finally, He is our only hope because as the perfectly obedient man, He alone can redeem and restore everything that the first man lost. I'm not going to read through all 75 names here again. It was hard enough the first time. But spend some time looking through this. So often we pass by these genealogies as if they don't matter. But they matter so much. And we've got to ask the question, why in the world would Luke put this here? Why not put it back when he was born? That makes the most sense, right? A few things this genealogy does for us is it tells us that Jesus was 30 years of age when He began His ministry. Very important. 
Joseph rises to rule in Egypt at 30. David ascends to the throne at 30. Levites can perform in the tabernacle at 30. We start seeing how all these shadows and types of the Old Testament, all of their fulfillment is pointing to this one. And this genealogy tells us a couple of things. It tells us that there's obscurity in Jesus' line. Unlike Matthew who follows Joseph's line, which is very prestigious, Solomon and other major rulers there, Luke follows Mary's line, which is why there's some differences in their genealogy. He follows Mary's line, and Mary's line is much more obscure. It's not nearly as prestigious. Most of the people you read, you've never even heard about. You won't find their name in the Old Testament. And yet, for 30 years, Jesus lives in obscurity. You know very little or anything about Him. He's humble. But most importantly, the most important connection today is the last name in the line. Rather than stopping at Abraham the way that Matthew did, Luke goes all the way back to Adam, who is called the Son of God. Why? Why did Luke do that? Luke did that because he wants to make clear Jesus didn't just come for Israel. Jesus came for all humanity. He's not just Israel's hope. He's humanity's hope. And He has come to restore everything that the first Adam lost. That line, all those 75 names, is full of the same thing. Sin, failure. Sin, failure. Why? Because it's merely repetitions of what everyone got from their first father Adam. But Jesus comes to interrupt and to break this family tree of death that began with Adam. He comes to usher in a family tree of life so that everyone who is grafted in Him by faith can have eternal life in Him. And He comes to do that for all eternity. My friends, Jesus comes to restore what the first Adam lost. He had to be fully man in order to restore and to redeem and to recreate a new humanity in the perfect image of God. Where Adam was tempted out the gate and fell, Jesus will be perfectly obedient. And that's why the very next scene you're going to be seeing seeing chapter 4 is what? Jesus led to the wilderness to be tempted by who? Satan. And He's going to be victorious. Why? Because He's perfectly obedient. He will restore what the first Adam lost. This is what Luke is wanting to make very clear from the outset. Jesus is coming to create a new humanity. A new, restored, redeemed humanity that can faithfully live out the dominion given to it in Psalm chapter 8. In Genesis 1 and 2. Only in Christ can we have the hope of overcoming this constant battle of sin and death and wickedness that we see throughout this world, that we fight with within ourselves. The only way to overcome it is by Jesus, the greater Adam. He had to be fully God. And He had to be fully man in order to be the hope that we all needed. So here's just a recap. Jesus is humanity's only hope because though His message and people are opposed at every turn, His purposes will never be thwarted. Jesus is our only hope because though perfectly spotless Himself, He chose to identify with and take the place of sinners. Jesus is our only hope 
Because as, as the anointed Son of God, He alone can reconcile men to God in perfect salvation. And Jesus is our only hope. Because as the perfectly obedient man, He alone can redeem and restore everything that the first man lost. My friends, we ought to be the most joyful people in the world because we have an infinite source of hope in Christ. Peter wrote, be ready to give a hope, a reason for the hope that's in you. Do people see that hope? Do they see it in your life in the midst of a dark world? Do they see a light of hope permeating through you? If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to persecute you? Is there hope in your life? Is there hope in Christ? And I say to you, turn your eyes to Jesus. He alone is the sum and substance of all of our hope. Everything else will fail you and fall short. My friends, Jesus is the hope we all need. The world needs to hear that more than anything else. So go give it to them today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for your truth. Lord, we pray that you will constantly put before our eyes the hope that we have in Jesus. The grand and glorious reality that there is salvation in no other. There is life in no other. There is joy in no other. There is peace in no other. There is only hope in Christ. So God, put that before us all today. Put it before our children. Put it before our own hearts that we have hope because Jesus lives. Because Jesus came. Because Jesus identified with us. Because Jesus was perfectly obedient. Because Jesus went to Calvary to die in our place. Lord, we thank You for giving us Your beloved Son so that we could go from being merely children of men to once again becoming children of God. Adopted into Your family where we could call You Abba Father because You have redeemed us in Christ. Lord, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You for Your mercy. Turn our eyes to Jesus that the light of His hope will permeate the darkness we feel from our own hearts and the world around us. You have saved us. You have changed us. Let us live in light of the hope that you give. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.